1: Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. This week, we're breaking from the norm to bring you an interview with Austin Lieberman. Austin runs a Substack newsletter called Growth Curve, as well as a Twitter account with more than 35,000 followers and a growing YouTube channel where he shares investment advice and tips, including the companies that he's looking at at the moment. A few weeks ago, Emmett sat down with Austin to chat about his background and how he became interested in investing in the first place, what Austin's best and worst investment mistakes are, and amazingly, they both involve the same company, and they finish off with a stock playoff where Austin ranks companies against each other. Of course, if you listen to this episode in the My Wall Street app, you also get some bonus content, including the three stocks that Austin would buy now and hold for the next 10 years. If you want to listen to that? Just hit the link in the notes for today's show. Stock Club will return as normal next week. But for now, sit back and enjoy this great interview.
2: Austin Lieberman, stock analyst, investor, YouTuber, military veteran and writer, you're very welcome to Stock Club.
0: Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I think I think I need to focus on like doing one or two things and stop trying to do so many <laughs> things. At least that's what, what my wife would definitely. My well, wife would definitely say that.
2: Well, you do one of them very well. I can't talk about the other things, but certainly you are <laughs> a stock analyst uh, extraordinaire, Austin. Before we dive into the market and talk about uh, I suppose some of your preferred ways to lose money these days. Can you tell me a little bit about your career to date?
0: Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. And thanks for having me. Um, I'm a big fan obviously of you and my wall street and this podcast and really just anybody that's out there trying to educate and inspire people to start taking control of their financial futures. Um, and I say that because that's how I got exposed to investing. I grew up in a pretty middle class family. Um, we had everything we needed, and uh, but you know, parents didn't necessarily save and invest, and so I wasn't really exposed to the stock market. First time I could ever remember being exposed to the stock market was fifth grade. We did a like an investing competition, and I think we picked five stocks, and I don't remember the time period, but I picked stocks that I knew, right? And this is funny, when, as I talk about like how I've now actually, my investing style and how I've learned to actually invest, but back in fifth grade I picked uh, AOL, because of AOL Instant Messenger, Disney, because I was a fan of Disney, and I don't even remember the other three stocks that our group picked. But on the backs of, and I forget the year, because I'm too lazy to go back and look at the year I was in fifth grade. But it was when AOL was going insane and then Disney also went insane. And so on the back of those two stock picks, our little team ended up being ranked nationally in terms of whatever this competition was. Um, All that to say for the next, I don't know, 10, 15 years through school and really through life never got any real exposure to investing. Um, I played Baseball, growing up, um, ended up getting a 50% scholarship to an out-of-state private university, which uh, in the United States, I know you've got listeners all over the world, um, (laughs) private just means really expensive, and then Mm. uh, I was focused on baseball and so wasn't really able to work, but got a letter from the registrar's office that our, my tuition hadn't been paid uh, a couple days before the end of the first semester, and I realized that you know it was too much of a strain on my parents financially. As much as they wanted to um, support me and, and let me try to keep playing baseball, I realized it just it, it was gonna, in my opinion, be too hurtful to them financially, uh, and I realized. The likelihood of me going to the next level and playing uh, professionally was probably very low, especially because some injuries and stuff I had. And so I kind of made that decision and, and ended up leaving that, um, that university, went to a local college and worked and saved for the, re- the next semester and then ended up going to a public university, an in-state school uh, that was much cheaper which is where I started Air Force ROTC. It's a, it's a way to get some training and eventually commission as an officer into the United States Air Force. And I did that because um, I didn't want to just be a college student. I wanted to be a part of something and, and I liked the idea of um, a little bit of sacrifice and, and service and then doing something that I wasn't sure that I could do and had never been challenged to do before. But also there were scholarship opportunities, and so I ended up earning a 100% scholarship through ROTC, and I had a 75% scholarship f- uh, from the state of Florida, which is w- where I was going to school. Um, and it's funny, that's it's not funny, it's kinda sad. That 75% scholarship was funded through a state program by the lottery in the state, wow. which is just like, the dynamic there is kinda depressing, but at least they're using some of the money that they steal from uh, people essentially, uh, for a good cause. Um, But the cool thing about it was, what's that?
2: It's a good cause and it's a great thing. And here in Ireland, an awful lot of the national lotteries uh, funds are kind of pumped back into small community projects that otherwise probably wouldn't get funded.
0: Yeah, 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 that's true. And it's a good point. It's just, it's just sad, you know, where a lot of that money comes from. And generally, you know, from a segment of the population that, that probably needs that money more than, uh, other segments of of population. When you just look at the income metrics of people who you know play the lottery, um, yeah. But I share all that to say that um, that just I was able to pocket that seventy five percent that I was getting through the state, and it was great because that allowed me to focus on training for the military and some other stuff, um, and just really get a good start on life, and then and then commissioned directly out of college and still had no exposure to actual investing. But what I realized through those experiences was that um, as amazing and loving and supportive as my parents were, I wanted to take a different approach financially. And so I had this goal of being responsible. I just had no idea how to start. And so um, fortunately, the first place I was assigned at the first duty station, I worked right next to somebody that had set themselves up early, pretty early in their military career, for financial freedom and for retirement. So literally, they could have retired pretty much at any point, and they were only, you know, in for eight to ten years at that point, which is like half of a, a career in the military. And I just saw the the stress relief from that person, and wanted to have, you know, be at that place in, uh, you know, eight to ten years from that point, and and the way that this person. Had found their stocks or found their investments was through the Motley Fool, um, so this was back in 2012-ish, um, and so that's how I got the exposure to the Motley Fool and individual stock picking. The stocks, a couple of stocks that this person had owned that, you know, went 30x or some something crazy was Netflix. They owned Netflix early and held on. They owned Amazon. Um, I believe they owned Mercado Libre. I'm not 100% sure, but the bottom line is just they had, they had. Learned from the Motley Fool, taken the plunge into individual stocks responsibly, and then just held on to them as the Motley Fool kind of you know, that's sort of what they stand behind. Um, and so, I had seen the Motley Fool's marketing before that, and it kind of turned me off just because I it, it seemed untrustworthy. But hearing it from him, and then actually getting in to see the services, it was super valuable. And and I ultimately I started doing I was like a community forum guide for them. I did a little bit of freelance writing and and just sort of learned to invest on my own while I was still in the military. And so that was from 2012 to 2017. Um, at that point, we I decided to leave active duty because I wanted to spend time with family and, and then did a year as a consultant at a technology consulting firm. So this is around 2018. Um, that's where I got exposed to cloud computing and a lot of these software and technology stocks that I invest in now. That's kind of the style of investor I am. And what I saw the consulting company I worked at was AWS's largest partner worldwide. They were a huge partner for Salesforce, a huge partner for Google cloud platform. Um, And so what I saw was just how transformational the transformation that um, some of the fortune 500, the largest companies in America, how outdated their digital infrastructure was, how much money they were spending on this transition and how long that transition taken, how, how early, we were in that process and I still think we're very early. Um, and so that's where I you know started to look at stocks like Salesforce and uh, Tableau and Alteryx and even AWS and, and you know just cloud style stocks. Um, and so yeah, after that we due to family reasons, ultimately we ended up we live in Florida now, which is close to family. I've worked remote um, since 2018 2019 since before it was cool. Um, so learned a lot about that and um, and then, really the next you know, big or meaningful thing was in late 2020, I applied to be an emerging manager um, at Social Capital, which if you follow Chamath Palihapitiya, he put out kind of the call out for applications um, and was fortunate to get picked up for that um, and learned a lot but ultimately, um, there was just some personal reasons and things I wanted to do that I wasn't sure I could do if I was uh, managing money professionally. Um, for example, I realized I wanted to stay in the Air National Guard, which means I'm going to spend some time away from home, and and uh, I struggled to find a way that I would be able to do that while managing, you know, potentially millions of dollars of somebody else's money. And so, um, 2021 was a tough year in every. I was down as a growth investor. That's about you know the most details I can say because it wasn't my money I was investing. Um, so yeah, it was definitely a tough stretch. But uh, when you share these things out on social media, you know you get a lot of criticisms from people, and they, they just have no idea um, what goes into some of these like personal and professional decisions. Um, and so yeah, and and so now that I also had a great opportunity uh, at a company called Common Stock, which is where mm-hmm. I've joined now, and I'm helping. Mm-hmm. Um, we're essentially trying to build uh, a community of transparency and and good information and healthy discussion around investing, kind of like Twitter but without the trolls. Um, mm-hmm. At CommonStock.com, and so that allows me to. You know, reach more people publicly than I was able to do if I was um, investing money professionally because you're not really allowed to talk about stocks and stuff like that. And so uh, that brings us to today. I I have a newsletter. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to learn YouTube a little bit because um, every opportunity I've had since I left the military has come from networking and sharing, documenting my investing journey or what I've learned about cloud computing on Twitter or in my newsletter or YouTube. And so maybe those things turn into... A meaningful email list or revenue at some point or whatever Uh, but even already you know creating content trying to create good content about investing on the internet has Mm -hmm. has helped me with a lot of opportunities and and it's helped me learn a lot too and so that was kind of rambling but that's that's my history (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it's a it's a, a fascinating career so
2: far, and I have so many questions I want to hit you with about Chamath, but I'm not going to ask you anything because I can only presume it's just not cricket, all boy. And um, I love, but what I would like to do is ask you about um, UCF in Orlando, and and what what were you studying? That kind of, was there a dotted line between what you were studying and what? transpired as your interest and skill set in cloud computing and all the parties there. No, I
0: studied criminal I oh man, I started We're going to do this whole thing without talking about investing. I started at the Division 2 college on a track to study engineering even though I hated math and I hated doing hard work in school because it felt like uh, that was a a good thing to study to get, you know, good jobs after college. I quickly realized as in, in like the first couple weeks that that was not for me. And so I don't even remember what I switched to at that school. Um, but then when I went to UCF, I started in biology, (laughs) which is also funny and embarrassing. Um, think that may have been. I may have been dating somebody that was like into science and biology and and her mom might have influenced me to go down that track or something. Um, Nothing against her or her mom. But I was was just, you know, lost and misguided academically. Um, I I had always focused on baseball and sports and I did fine in high school. I just didn't have like an academic passion. But ultimately, I joined ROTC and I knew that that meant I would have if I graduated, which I thought I would, uh, it meant that I would have a a decent paying job and it's regardless of your degree. So I just needed a bachelor's degree. And so I chose criminal justice, which is like studying uh, policy and law and things like that um, because it was easy and because it, I was a little bit interested in it. So I, I knew I would like go to class and stuff and get decent grades. But I was also, I wanted to be what's called a combat rescue officer in the Air Force. And the physical training required for that is, uh, it just very, very intense. And so what I decided to do was strive for that. It's, there's a there's like a 5% success rate of people that apply to actually end up becoming a combat rescue officer. And so I took an easy path academically and a very challenging path um, physically and then, in training for the Air Force. And ultimately I was, I I went to the assessment for that and got selected and then later failed out in training after I commissioned, which is like a whole nother story of dealing with failure and adversity and changing careers and stuff. Um, But yeah, I studied criminal justice in college, which has nothing to do with investing. And then after college, I got a master's degree in Homeland Security, which also has nothing to do with investing.
2: No, actually, I, look, it's a fascinating area of study. I'm sure I, I can understand why you're attracted to it. And, you know, a lot, an awful lot of things you study in university, it's just like a, a gym for your brain. Like you're going to study something that's challenging your mind in new ways, challenging the way you've seen the world to this point and then your understanding. So I completely get it. But I equally would say it's I've always thought it's quite difficult for young people to have to choose what they are going to do in college you know age 16 you're meant to decide well this is the thing i want to be and i always felt that that's a tough one unless it's a let's say a vocational profession like maybe being a doctor or a lawyer or whatever uh, the, the you know getting a, a broad degree i always think is your best bet uh, i say to everyone uh you should just uh, go get an engineering degree while you figure out what it is you want to do actually a side story is my uh, my wife's late father said to all of his nine kids you can study whatever you want once you've once you've gotten your engineering degree and I think that's brilliant and he turned out an entire army of engineers who all went their own separate ways and you just can't I believe you just can't go wrong with an engineering degree but that is very interesting Austin so here let's get to let's get to the point can't let's go straight there what has been your best investment and your worst investing mistake.
0: Yeah, this is going to be interesting because it's actually the same stock. Um, And so I bought, it was, we'll just go with $10,000 of Shopify in January of 2017. That was my best investment decision. Um, Even today, if you look back, so Shopify is down 80% from its highs, but since January, 2017, it's still up around 620%, so that means that $10,000, say I had just invested that $10,000, say just, I mean $10,000 could be a lot, for some people it could be a little for others, but let's say I only put in that 10,000, it'd still be up 620% today, and that 10,000 would have turned into $72,000. After That's even after this 80% drop. Um, Shopify at one point was up 3,600% from, uh, from when I bought it in January of 2017 to uh, late 2021, but obviously since then it's you know it's gotten crushed a little bit. So um, mm. that was my best investment, even after this crazy drop. Um, and the worst mistake I made was selling it for I think it was like 100% gain in a matter of three to six months or something like that. This was. Pretty early on, still in my investing journey, I still think I'm early in my investing journey and learning a ton. But you know that was even earlier. And the Motley Fool, which is you know what I, where I learned to invest, they preached you know buying and holding, and it's really hard to do even if you believe in that. And um, that was an example of me not doing it because I, I had this hundred percent gain. I I wanted to you know lock in those profits and. But the, the lesson there is um, if we're investing for the long term and and we're managing our personal finances you know responsibly, then true life-changing generational wealth, I believe, is made by buying and holding and even potentially adding over time. And we're not just talking, you know, it's it's still it's crazy, but it's still only been five years, six years since 2017. And if we look back at the Amazons, the Googles, the Apples, the Microsofts of the world, you know, the generational wealth-building compounding comes in year 10, 15, and 20. And so who knows how big of a mistake that will end up being. Um, but, and we'll probably get into this, you know, Shopify has now sold off a ton, and so maybe there'll be an opportunity for me to to get back in. Um, but yeah, Shopify, every, best and worst. Every,
2: every investing master, says that a sell was their worst decision i have yet to interview somebody here in the podcast or in just somebody I speak to uh, in real life or uh, of all the books i'm looking at over the top of my computer here every master investor says their worst decision was in some way related to a sell and actually you, you mentioned the motley fool and I, I googled recently to see what david gardner uh co-founder of the motley fool what his you know greatest investing mistake was, and he said it was selling uh, ARM, the stuff did, yeah. Cambridge, yeah, ARM stock uh, for something like a 100 or 200% gain. It really is a trap, and it is the, the because every single day for eight hours a day, the market is shouting at you a price, and it's just there to be taken. You drop your finger and it's gone, and it really is such a trap. Anyway, so it's very interesting to hear you say that. But now that you've learned that about yourself, can you describe your investment strategy today in a few sentences?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's it's still very similar. I mean, it's very similar to the David Gardner rule breaker approach, right? I want to find companies generally that are between 1 billion and 50 billion in market cap because that allows us to have that long-term growth horizon while still being a company that um, you know, there's some things we got to watch out for, like enough volume and and things that probably details we don't need to get into on the podcast. But that window, essentially above a one billion dollar market cap, helps avoid um, some of the manipulation that can come with you know much smaller stocks and 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 lower volume stocks. Um, but then keeping it below a fifty billion dollar market cap gives you the potential for that runway of growth, and it also allows to make mistakes on valuation. So valuation is so tough, and it's kind of a complicated topic, and there's all kinds of different multiples you can look at, whether it's price to earnings, price to sales, you'll see them all out there. If the last year to two years has taught us nothing else, I think what it's taught is that even the best investors in the world, the professional analysts at all these, you know, super elite investment banks, everybody's price targets have been adjusted and have been way too high. And so I think what we have to do as individual investors is create safeguards for ourselves to make mistakes because we're gonna make mistakes and ultimately having the room for those mistakes to correct themselves and then the time horizon to ultimately benefit from compounding is super important. And so if you buy a company early enough and you can look back at Microsoft, you can look back at Amazon, Salesforce, there were periods in time where for Salesforce, for example, this is off the top of my head, you could have bought Salesforce at something like a a 10 or 12X price to sales multiple, which compressed, so shrank to four or five over time. But because it was early enough in its lifespan, Salesforce grew their revenue enough to make up for that price to sales multiple compression and then still reward investors with a 20 to 25% compounded annual return. And so uh, that's kind of the first thing is is you know that company size window. And then in terms of just attributes of a company, I'm looking for companies that are you know growing revenue consistently at 20 25% plus. Mostly I invest in software companies, so we're looking at gross margin that can be higher than, you know, a company that's producing something um, like most automobile companies. And the reason for that is kind of simple. It's if you create software, you can essentially sell another subscription or license to somebody for with zero cost of having to go and produce that thing. Whereas if you're invested in somebody that makes clothes, in order to sell the next thing, they have to run it through the whole line of production. And so, yeah, generally one to $50 billion companies mostly growing revenue 25% plus, and then I kind of focus on the software industry. And then for a, uh, if I'm managing a fixed portfolio, then I would look to have a cap on position sizes. I'm not gonna say a percentage of a portfolio for a person, but I think as investors, we just have to think about what is our sleep number as David Gardner calls it, and and. How much of our wealth are we comfortable putting into a single position? And then whatever we think that is, it, our position, our max position size should probably be half that until we actually go through a drawdown. And so, yeah, it's just f- trying to find these these what I think are great growth companies and being able to hold them for the long term, and then setting myself up by not using margin and, and crazy leverage and things like that, and not having too large of position sizes. That lets me deal with kind of the volatility of day to day, which is why. Um, you know, having a a service like my Wall Street or The Motley Fool, which gives you a bunch of ideas that essentially become small parts of a portfolio and are allowed to grow over time can be a great answer for investors. And I can say that because I was a paying subscriber to The Motley Fool for a very long time. Um, And I I know what that experience was like. And it was super transformational for me as as an investor. Mm
2: There are over 20,000 cryptocurrencies out there at the moment, Austin. Uh, and I believe you told me before you're a holder of Bitcoin. How many of those 20,000 uh, cryptocurrencies do you follow? And how many of them do you own? And what's your, uh, where's your, I suppose, on the belief Richter scale, where are you at the moment on cryptocurrencies on a scale of 1 to 10? That's not a Richter scale, scale, by the way.
0: Yeah, this is a, this is kind of a hot topic right now. And I'm actually really frustrated by some of the news that's come out from the crypto industry lately, and it's everything from Luna absolutely collapsing because of of it being an algorithmic um, stable coin, and then just some of the recklessness that we've seen. We're seeing Michael Saylor in the news for his $4 billion bet with MicroStrategy being down Mm -hmm. $1.25 billion. I just tweet. I got blocked by Raul Paul this morning because I was retweeting him his tweets from October, where he said he was irresponsibly long Ethereum and leveraged, and Ethereum's down eighty percent since then. Um, he
2: canceled you because you quoted him.
0: He well, I I also commented on a few of his tweets. I didn't insult him personally. I was frustrated. I pointed out, in my opinion, the recklessness of what he said and and there, there's details to it, but he's got a huge following. And the fact of the matter is, is when you have a following like that and you're seen as that type of knowledgeable figure, people are going to just copy what you do, um, even though you're not giving them financial advice. And that was my problem with, with what his approach was. And then today, he, I saw him out there tweeting uh, how he's never used leverage in crypto. And, and so basically he's playing both sides of that coin, right? He was trying to ride the hype train up. And, and now he's correcting it on the way down. And that just frustrates me. Like we all make bad calls, right? But um, at least own up to them. And then um, if you have a large following like that, I, I think you have some responsibility to not potentially influence people to be completely reckless and irresponsible.
2: So how many I say all that to say, I'm frustrated oh, yeah.
0: by the recklessness in, in crypto. Yeah. While at the same time, I think it's totally reasonable to have a, this goes back to that whole position sizing and knowing yourself and having having your guardrails. It's totally fine to have a small percentage of your portfolio in some type of cryptocurrencies. And so uh, I had a little bit of exposure to Luna. Guess what, it went to zero and my life is no different because of it because it was a position that if it 1000x'd, it would be meaningful. If it went to zero, it wouldn't hurt me. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't have a position in Luna anymore. Uh, I have some Solana, I have some Bitcoin, I have some Ethereum, and then I have like a couple of other coins that honestly, I like. I there was just a recurring buy for them, and uh, but the the percentage of my wealth in this is you know we're talking one percent of um, total wealth or less. And so hmm. I think the takeaway there is like you've got to know what you're invested in in crypto even though there's people out there that, that claim to be experts, it's, in my opinion, impossible to be an expert on an investment that, like on an investing asset that doesn't have 50 years of, of history because what history is there to draw off of and what, what trends are there to draw off of? With, mm-hmm. with stocks, we, we know how stocks have been valued and, and, and sure, valuations might get stretched and change over time but we know the fundamental basis of like how stocks are valued and the different ways that they're valued with crypto. It's just anybody's guess at this point. Is it valued Hmm. off of block space? Is it valued off of VC money coming in? Is it valued off of Nobody actually knows. And no one actually knows what moves crypto up and down, no matter what they say about it. It's like, no one knows. But Um, that
2: is the kernel of the issue that I have with cryptocurrency, which is when I analyze a stock, Um, I arrive at my opinion based on what's nearly 30 years of doing it every day. And I don't give a darn what anyone else thinks. (laughs) I will acknowledge other people's, always respect other people's opinion, and I'll absorb a lot of other people's opinions. But uh, I have my own opinion that's rooted in the fundamentals of business analysis and strategy. Whereas with cryptocurrency, I am entirely at the Beck and call of the world's opinion. I, I can't tell you if Coin is good or uh, Coin or Ethereum. I can tell you what a lot of smart people say. And in fact, I was speaking to a very, very senior person in Goldman Sachs there about um, about four months ago. This guy's up the very, very top of the chain. And he said he has a whole pile of guys, his words on mine, a whole pile of guys who he's paying $3 million a year to who are leaving in droves to go join crypto startups and in my head i'm like you have people leaving a three million year a dollar a year job to join a crypto startup what am i missing (laughs) like how many people land at three million books a year job on this world of ours are very 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 few far less than one less than one in a million and yet the call of this great big shiny thing on the horizon for me I just can't get it I'm going to have to just stay the old granddad on crypto and go look I know one or two of them are going to prevail but I just think it's uh it's for in the vast 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 majority the emperor's new clothes it's a complete load of
0: bs that's my view
2: yeah yeah I'm not to jazz for it but there you go I just threw
0: it (laughs) yeah it's interesting like those people that were getting paid three million dollars to do their job Mm. at at that bank and then Mm. left for crypto you know the thing that probably motivated them at the job that they had previously wasn't some higher calling or cause, it was probably the money. And so when crypto was booming, what did they do? They followed the excitement and the money. And then, and the other thing too is, who was talking about this? Nick Majuli, who um, writes the blog of dollars and data, he works at um, Ritholtz Wealth Management, He's he's on Twitter. He said, when you're in that kind of class of people, Say three million plus or a million plus, you don't compare yourself to to somebody making eighty or a hundred thousand dollars a year. You compare mm-hmm. yourself to everybody around you making three million or or more than you, and and that's your normal. And so, yeah, what I would guess is that they were they were seeing the money and the potential that other people were making, and then and then not wanting to be outdone or whatever, or maybe bored or, or whatever, you know. And it's, I bet some of those people are going to be crawling back. Uh, to him either already or mm. pretty soon with what's going on in crypto and, and yeah. not to make light of it. But um, yeah, it's just... Yeah. So
2: I tell you what, let's me let it, let's take it back to something we both know and enjoy. And that is stock market. So can you tell me what's your favorite sources for stock research? Like uh, what do you use and who do you follow?
0: Well, of course, number one, My Wall Street. Uh, yeah, subscribe right now, everybody. Um, no, I'm I'm obviously just messing. I'm not messing around. It's a fantastic resource, but I'm just trying to butter up to Emmett here. Um, yeah. In all seriousness, my Wall Street Motley Fool still has. They've got um, a lot of of free articles out there and free education, and then paid services. Um. I never saw a need personally to pay for any of their, you know, super, super expensive services. And I think it was just because I wasn't at that income level when I was subscribing. Um, but the point is there's very affordable services from um, The Motley Fool. And so, yep, those are kinda like the two paid mm-hmm. ones I think that that I've got experience with that I'm willing to talk about positively. And then in terms of doing my own research, um, I've actually really started to enjoy using FastGraphs and it's not, FastGraphs isn't for research. What FastGraphs does is it's the best visualization tool that I've ever used to be able to pull a stock up, look at a chart, and on that chart, you can see things like, all in the same chart, you can see the fundamentals of the stock. What has their historical multiple been? What has their earnings growth or revenue growth been? And then what are the analyst expectations going forward? And there's ways you can kind of like plot different scenarios and look at history and future expectations all on the same same graph. And so um, FastGraphs has, has been a resource that I've really liked. Um, but I've also recently used things like Seeking Alpha and Morningstar just to look at different opinions. They, they both have free and paid options. And then I spend a lot of time just looking at kind of industry reports. Um, there's reports come out every year with the fastest growing businesses, and so I'll take those and then I'll kind of run them through and, and I, I try to spend a lot of time looking at individual companies and that's everything from um, 10Ks, annual reports, to quarterly reports, investor conferences, investor days. Um, there's a, an amazing amount of just free information out there and uh, with a little bit of direction and a process, I think um, individuals and investors can be you know, very well informed. Um, and then I've gotta say Common Stock too. Common Stock, there's no paid offering with Common Stock, but it's just a community of a lot of people sharing ideas. Um,
2: yeah, it's awesome. I've just started recently. And also, FastGraphs is something I'm going to jump onto right after this call because I haven't heard of it. I haven't used it. And it's usually, you know, I've heard of whatever it is our guests talk about. But this is a new one for me. Looking forward to playing with that today. Um, awesome. Let's play. Let's play a game. Let's, it's a simple game. It uh, has a simple name. And the rules are in the name. It's called Pick Your Favorite. And I'm going to pitch you a whole pile of pairs of stocks and all you have to do is pick your favorite or pass if you don't know either of the companies
0: are you ready to play what if i know one but not the other um declare declare that to be the case what do i get if i win you didn't say anything about winning but we have to wait 10 years to see if you win because we're gonna all invest in your favorite (laughs) okay and then you'll give me one of whatever cryptocurrency is pumping the most in 10 years. Yeah. You'll give me one of those.
2: That's right. That's right. right. Okay. So it's go- I'm not going to put a whole load of thought into this, and I hope you'll return the favor. Okay. Got it. So let's start with InsureTech and the new wave of of noobs around InsureTech. Lemonade or Hippo?
0: Um, I love to drink lemonade. I don't know Hippo, and I would... Never invest in the stock lemonade. Never is a strong word. I'm not interested in investing oh. in the stock lemonade. So,
2: very interesting. I don't know hey, if I answered that
0: one or not, but that's No, you my did.
2: Answer. Yeah, pause for a minute. Tell me why. Uh,
0: I haven't looked at lemonade in a long time, but when I did, it was, I, I didn't see a path to profitability and it was just extremely overvalued which a lot of stocks were in a lot of stocks are down 80%. And so Mm -hmm. there's a chance now that the valuation makes more sense. The work I would have to do on lemonade is seeing what progress they've made towards profitability. And if there's, I'm okay with non-profitable companies, but I've got to see a path to profitability. That was my issue before was I didn't see that path. And so I would just have to do some work and see Mm -hmm. where they're at.
2: Okay. Let's, let's go to the other end of the size scale. Atlassian or Microsoft.
0: Both awesome companies. I would Without looking at you know multiples of them, I would lean towards Atlassian because, like I said, it's in that it's a smaller market cap, and so there's a chance for more upside in a smaller market cap stock. Um, LoveSack or Natuzzi? Oh, I uh, don't know either of these stocks, but I think I've had some LoveSack bean bags or something, mm. maybe. So, got to go with yeah. LoveSack.
2: Okay um Etsy or eBay
0: uh Etsy um again it's a tough one the stock's been crushed but uh there's they've got a competitive advantage around you know handcrafted curated things and then they don't have a lot of the inventory risk that other mm-hmm. retailers have
2: axon technologies or rap technologies
0: I don't know rap but axon Ac- I'm a fan of Axon. Um, a, they're a clear leader in their industry, um, very sticky sticky products or services that, that they've now got um, you know law enforcement agencies and other government agencies subscribing to. And I think we're entering, unfortunately in some ways, but also fortunately because we have the technology to make the world safer in some ways. Uh, We're entering into an age where we're going to need more um, of the technologies and the solutions that Axon offers. So, Axon.
2: Less guns is what you're trying to say, but I'm okay to say it. I'm in Ireland.
0: Well, more, I was going (laughs) to say more surveillance, but I didn't, but uh, not surveillance in the way of um, a nation state watching everything that people do. But surveillance, you know, to keep so PC, Austin, it's unbelievable.
2: Okay, Uh, Virgin Galactic or Boeing?
0: This is hard. Um, Probably Boeing. Surprisingly, Um, it's so hated. They actually have revenue, which last I checked, Virgin Galactic didn't. And I was bullish on Virgin Galactic. But your old boss, Um, your old
2: boss, brought us Virgin Galactic. (laughs) What's that? Your old boss, Chamath, brought us Virgin Galactic.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I was bullish. Good. And it was I was bullish when they were supposed to start generating revenue you know, sometime yeah. in the next year. And now it's been, I don't know, three years, and still little yeah. to no revenue. Boeing's hated, but um, they're, it's hard to imagine a world without Boeing. And if they can get their act together, then you know they'll probably be OK.
2: Snowflake or Oracle?
0: snowflake, um no I own, no the yep. yeah. own the stock yep, own the stock uh super great product, very impressive yeah. fundamentals and and execution from the leadership uh it's one of it's one of my largest positions, which I think we'll talk about in a minute
2: um interesting, so uh Apple or Berkshire, let's go to the absolute premium end of platinum grade
0: oh, this is hard, uh uh, Apple, I think, because, yeah, um, I think, you know, Berkshire is exposed to a lot of capital intensive businesses and they've got, I don't know, like 40 percent of the portfolio in Apple. So um, if Apple craters, then Berkshire is also going to get crushed. But if the rest of Berkshire's companies crater, then Apple Theoretically, wouldn't be harmed unless somehow Berkshire impacted Apple, which I don't (laughs) think they would.
2: Because I think you've that one for sure. (laughs) Okay, come here. Stoneco, are you familiar with Stoneco?
0: Ah, kind of, but not enough to make Stoneco or
2: PayPal. Yeah, you're gonna pass.
0: Is this this is PayPal? Uh, If it's PayPal, yeah. Uh,
2: Stoneco or PayPal. PayPal. Go PayPal, okay, yeah. but you don't know Stone Co. No, I think Stone Co., I think Stone Co. today is going to produce some of the greatest returns out there over the next oh, wow. 10 years, yeah. But anyway, that's another podcast. Uh, CRISPR, are you afraid, do you know CRISPR Technologies, the company? Yep, or Pfizer? Ah, very different businesses,
0: yes. I don't know. Uh,
2: it's really a how risky, how risky an investor are you question?
0: Yeah, I feel like if I was, if I was going to do a 1% or less position CRISPR, because mm-hmm. I could lose 1%, but if you're really right, then you know could do really well.
2: Mm-hmm. OK, so one you mentioned earlier, your, your kind of um, prized example, Shopify or Amazon?
0: Shopify.
2: Let's go freestyle. So I t- so uh, th- what I have here in my digital notebook is you choose Atlassian over Microsoft, Lovesack over Natutsi, Etsy over eBay, Axon over Wrap, Boeing over VG, Snowflake over Oracle, Apple over Berkshire, PayPal over Stoneco, Crisp over Pfizer, Shopify uh, over Amazon. You know what I'm going to do before we ask you to go freestyle and just tell us your three favorite stocks to buy now? Uh, we're going to do a little playoff, okay? So... Uh, Atlassian versus Shopify which would you
0: choose this is where looking at the multiples would really come in no no
2: just go you just go with your gut let your heart sing
0: (laughs) um Atlassian okay
2: Uh, snowflake versus Atlassian Snowflake. Yeah. Uh, Snowflake versus Apple. Snowflake. Okay, uh, I can see the way this is going to shape up. Shopify versus um, Snowflake. Snowflake. Okay, right. Well, that's a perfect segue into your three favorite stocks to buy now, uh, today in June 2022. And to hold for the next ten years, you this money is locked away. You can't touch it.
1: So, guys, if you're not listening to Stock Club in the My Wall Street app, this is where we're going to leave you today. However, if you want to listen to the rest of this interview with Austin and find out what the three companies he would buy right now and hold for the next ten years are, jump on over to the My Wall Street app and you can listen to the rest of the interview for free. You'll find a link for that in the notes for today's show. Thanks again to Austin for joining us on the interview, and remember, you can follow him on his Substack channel. That's called growth curve as well as on his twitter and his youtube accounts if you have any questions that you'd like us to answer or future guests you'd like us to interview on stock club make sure to get in touch you can find us as always on twitter that's at my wall street hq on tiktok that's at my wall street or simply just email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. that's pod at mywallst.com. if you're enjoying the show make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on thanks for listening in to this interview today and we'll be back as normal next week